Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome aboard. You're listening to this on a Thursday afternoon where if you're a very keen Times Radio listener, you will know that Jane and I have been at Destinations, the UK's largest travel show at Kensington Olympia. But here, Jane, we sound like we're back in the studio. And that's because we are. Because in our life, it's actually Wednesday. And we're doing this now so that we can do it tomorrow. And I really hope that makes sense. <laughs> it doesn't, but that's the beauty of it. And obviously we have um, an entirely appropriate guest for this podcast, don't we? Well, we do, because the guest that goes out tomorrow is the one that, if you're listening today, we recorded yesterday. That's right. <laughs> it is. Travel writer and filmmaker Ash Bardwaj. And he has travelled all over the world, hasn't he, Jane? I mean, really... If either you or I ever attempted to say that we were adventurous travellers, we well, were just, I wouldn't. just pale into <laughs> insignificance. And also what was rather winning about him was at the same time as he was talking to us via various um, domestic forms of 21st century technology, which sort of, sort of worked about 70% of the time, he was also looking after his ex absolutely enchanting eight-week-old daughter. Yeah. And he was doing it in a very... I can do these two things at once sort of a way. But he was doing it really well, I've yeah. got to say. So his daughter was in one of those lovely little baby rockers, you know, the ones that gently bounce. They never gave my kids any joy. And there was not a peep out of her. No. And I don't... I, I tried back in the day a couple of times to do interviews and work type things with a baby in tow, and they could just tell. So they just screeched all the way through, yeah. which, you know... Well, I'm afraid I did deploy a dummy, um, I, but... He, didn't even, use, he a didn't dummy. even use a dummy. But it was quite funny because while we were talking to him, so we were doing this on a kind of Zoom esque type thing, he was gently rocking himself. <laughs> it reminded it me a, a little bit of, of the old guys I used to work with in local commercial radio who'd come off pirate ships and could only ever broadcast like swaying. this, swaying back and well, forth. Are you sure that's the reason? Sure That's what they told me. Else at play. We're doing it now, so we've got these lovely seats. Anyway, uh, he has done an 8,500-kilometre trip recently down what is mostly uh, the western border of Russia. Russia's border with Europe has been a particular interest to him, but he's also trekked through Sudan's Bayuda Desert, 
Uh, he's gone to base camp at Everest with wounded British soldiers. There's just nothing this man, I want to say young man, he is a young man, isn't he? Yeah. Much younger than us. Uh, hasn't done. And he was a really interesting guest to have on. Do you want to do an email before we get to him? Should we go straight to Ash? Well, let's go straight to Ash because the emails are, well, there are some from abroad. In fact, there are lots from abroad, which we welcome. That's also been very, they've been carefully plucked from our pile of emails. I think they're all from people who are not in the United Kingdom. That's very thoughtful. How very it? appropriate. But we'll do those later. Yeah, so we started by asking Ash about his new travel companion. She is two months old and she is... I'm very much looking forward to bringing her into the travel world with me uh, and taking her off on adventures. Maybe I won't quite be hiking through Kashmir or crossing the Bioda Desert with her just yet, but <laughs> she's, she is going to be part of my travel team from now on. Okay, and you have already told Fee and I off air that you are planning quite a long plane journey with her, and we'd just like to give you the benefit of our advice, if you don't mind. Don't do it. That's the um, <laughs> that's the essential bit of advice. Um, do you think, seriously, it will have any impact on your attitude to travel? Um, I think I'll certainly be more hesitant to do anything that has higher levels of risk. Um, and... I think it will also help me travel with greater empathy and compassion. To me, the whole thing about travel journalism and traveling more generally is that you're encountering new cultures and new places, new ideas and new ways of living. There are plenty of people around the world who have different ways of parenting. And I think being able to go with my baby to do those things will help, help break down small barriers and speak to people about the kind of things you don't normally get to do when you're traveling. Can you remember when you first got the travel bug where you thought this is absolutely the thing that's going to make the rest of my life tick? I, I really can. You know, I'm, I'm half Indian. I was raised by my mum, who's English, but she made a huge effort to ensure that I spent time with my Indian family. So I always had this awareness about the curiosity that lives could be very different based on your background. And then when I was 17, I was at my local state school um, the school actually had a rugby tour going to Australia, New Zealand and the Cook Islands. Um, and my mum, uh, who was working as a cleaner, we lived in social housing. She got a second job as a cleaner to save up for me to go on that rugby tour because she said, you don't get opportunities like this very often. And I think you should you should really have the chance to do this. So I went off on that rugby tour, went to Australia. We played a couple of games there and went to New Zealand. And what really struck me about New Zealand was that unlike many other formerly British colonised nations, the indigenous people of New Zealand had a prominence in that state, both on the flag, with the haka and rugby. And you get off the plane at Auckland Airport and signs are in Maori. Our coach driver was Maori, you know, very different to my experience of indigenous culture in Australia. And I was just fascinated that there was this place that had many elements that were very similar to British culture. The Union flag is on the New Zealand flag. They play cricket, they play rugby. But then there's this real difference both in the climate and the landscape and the culture, but also this aspect of the indigenous culture there. And it just made me fascinated with that intersection of places, people, current affairs, identity and culture. And I just, I loved it. I had such a great time. I relished it. I relished speaking to people, finding out about their lives. And that was the inspiration that put me on to travel from then on. Is it fair to say, Ash, that in the past, the wrong sort of British people have travelled? Um, in other words, the privileged, the entitled, and those who are bound to see the world in a very particular way. And of course, overwhelmingly male. 
Yeah, I wouldn't say they're the wrong people. They were just the people that had the privilege and the access and the ability to do it. And therefore, for those of us learning about those places through their eyes, through their experiences, we would only have a particular view. We'd have the view of people who were wealthy, who were generally male and who were white. And for me, as somebody who comes from a less privileged background and who comes from a mixed ethnic background, it does mean I have different experiences when I go to places. Um, you know, going to, returning to New Zealand, um, canoeing down the Wanganui River with a Maori guide, he felt much more willing to share his stories of uh, some of the crimes com- that had been committed against Maori culture and like their losses of identity and land because he felt that he had a connection with me, me being half Indian and some similar stories happening in India. Um, traveling to Nepal, people are much more willing to speak to me rather than my white traveling companions, just because they're curious why this brown guy is with this group of people. Like, you don't look like a, an English person normally does. So it opens up barriers for me. Um, and, and other places, sometimes it can be more hostile. I've, I've not had a huge amount of hostility, but um, I, I know of stories of friends of mine, people of color traveling in Russia, who suffered quite awful racism. And you know, if you only have um, white men telling those stories, with women, of course, it's a very different experience of women traveling in many parts of the world. If you aren't aware of their experiences, then you're not getting a full picture of that place. You're not aware of the opportunities and some of the negative things about that place, which is why I think diversity in travel writing matters. Can we talk about this extraordinary trip that you did along the Russian border, eight and a half thousand kilometres? Why did you want to explore that? And actually, you'd better put it into the context of recent history because it's before the invasion of Ukraine, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's before the enlarged invasion of Ukraine. So Russia first invaded Ukraine in 2014 in the occupation and annexation of Crimea and then stoking the civil war in Donbass and then actually sending unmarked troops over the border. So that was the first invasion. I um, have been an officer in the British Army Reserve. I was with a unit called Seven Rifles. And after the occupation of Crimea, Estonia invited um, other NATO allies to come and help reinforce its defence. We were part of that group and we were doing training in Estonia. It was the first time we became really aware of what had happened in Crimea, affecting all of us, affecting Brits directly, me being a reservist, and becoming aware of the stories there around Russian attempts to stoke civil unrest around effectively uh, culture wars uh, with Russia, Russian people of Russian origin living in Estonia. And I wanted to understand this more in more places, and particularly how it was going to affect us. Uh, and for me, as someone of a mixed ethnic background, identity has always been a, an important question to me. So I decided to travel eight and a half thousand kilometres along the Russian-European border, starting in Kirkenes in Norway, which is where Norway touches Russia, coming down through Finland, into St. Petersburg, um, Viborg, which is on the border with uh, Finland, and then into Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Kaliningrad, Poland, uh, Belarus, and then into Ukraine. So I went to Chernobyl, went west to Lviv in Ivano-Frankis, into the mountains, east to Donbass, down to Odessa, and then I also got permission from the Ukrainian authorities to travel into Crimea um, and finish then in Transnistria in Moldova. And how... How different were the attitudes of people on the European side of that border uh, as you worked your way down? Because it would be so wrong of us to assume that there is the same feeling of edginess 
and possibly fear all the way along that border? I think certainly in the places that had been occupied under the Russian and then Soviet Empire, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they were very aware of the reality of what Russian occupation looks like. And they were aware of Russia's ambitions. You know, they had a fear, and I think it's a justified one, that Russia would want to return there. And they had seen for themselves Russia's efforts since the end of the Soviet Union to try and disrupt those countries and make life difficult, leveraging ethnic Russian populations in those countries. So in those countries, there was a a really clear-eyed understanding of what Russia, particularly under Putin, was really like. So within those countries, that was something very apparent. Um, In Ukraine, they they were at war with with Russia. They were fighting Russian troops uh, in the Donbass since 2014. So they had a very clear-eyed view of it as well. And Belarus was an interesting place because I I was mostly meeting people who were fairly uh, Europeanized in the sense that they a lot of them had studied in the UK or Poland. The people that I met, but even those who didn't speak English who spoke Russian and Belarusian, uh, largely Russian actually, uh, they didn't have like an enmity towards Europe, but they had a sort of sense that Russia would look after them. And yeah, I was very aware of the ongoing efforts within Belarus of sort of Russian ideological infiltration, if you like. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When or where, uh, during your travels, Ash, have you felt most vulnerable? Um, I felt quite vulnerable hiking through Honduras, largely because uh, there were people came up to us. I was, I was doing a, I was filming a television series for my friend Levinson Wood called Walking the Americas. And we walked through Honduras from the northern to the southern border. And as we entered the uh city of Tegucigalpa we were walking along a main road and a lady ran out to us from a a food stall and said you guys what are you doing I said oh we're just walking into um uh Tegucigalpa she said right I think you should get in a car now because there are these guys stood over there on a corner watching you 
and I think they'll, they'll mug you, they might even kill you, so you should probably get in a car and drive on. <laughs> I felt pretty vulnerable doing that. Um, but in terms of like general sense of um, threat, I think you know in in when I was when I was in Russia, you know, there's it was in the run up to the football World Cup in 2018, and there'd been a lot of talk about you know neo-Nazi football hooligans. And I remember being in a bar, and I was about to walk back to my hotel, and someone said, "Yeah, yeah, don't go that way. That's where all the skinheads live." So just being aware of those sorts of things, I think as a man, you tend to carry with you the privilege and hubris of feeling less vulnerable than maybe a, a woman would feel travelling on her own. And I think that's something that I'm aware of, or I try to be aware of, and I try to put that across in my writing because, you know, you see people writing, like, oh, it's very safe walking through this area. It's not, well, maybe it's for you, is it for everybody else? And, yeah, I think those would probably be the ones that really stand out to me. In that spirit then, Ash, what percentage of your travel do you think could have been done by a female equivalent? That's a really good question. Um, if I think about the place I've travelled through, I think I think Europe generally. Uh, I think I'd be probably better to ask you guys what you think. But in general, I find Europe a very easy place to travel. There's uh, less hostility or uh, unfamiliarity with women travelling. In a country like India, it's there's a lot of. It's very easy to travel around, but there are certainly levels of hostility. Uh, misogyny and outright violence towards women, particularly Indian women. And we, we've heard the awful stories in places like Delhi. Um, I do know plenty of women friends who have travelled around India safely on their own. It's not somewhere I would say to somebody, you can't do it. I just think that the women probably have to have, aren't able to have quite the same freedoms and take the same liberties and complacencies that I would. Um, you know, someone like Australia, New Zealand, Norway, Finland, Sweden, absolutely no trouble, I think, for women to be travelling around doing many things that they've done, that I've done. Uh, walking through Uganda and Sudan with Lev, many women have done very adventurous expeditions through hostile regions of the world, uh, environmentally hostile regions of the world. I think they would probably find some of the logistics and conversations harder. People will, in many places, will tend to turn to you as the man first, even if you're not the leader of the expedition or, or the expert. Uh, and I think that's changing as we're starting to improve awareness and see greater equality in society generally. I really like the point that you made about the fetishization, very difficult word for me to say, sorry about that, um, of travel. This notion that sometimes people are traveling because they want to go, oh, look at the scene of a tragedy or, oh, look at those buildings that were perhaps built by the Nazis, whatever it is. And and I think your episode of your podcast where you go to Chernobyl is a very interesting example of that. What do you think people gain by going to the scene of a terrible disaster? What is it that the traveller can usefully be part of in that kind of equation? I think the utility of it if you're going to look at it from very pragmatic terms is raising awareness about the hubris of what humans can do and the risk I mean, you mentioned about buildings that you know, might have been built by the nazis another thing that i think is interesting is the way 
British travellers in particular fetishise colonial architecture, like beautiful colonial buildings, ignoring the fact that those buildings are a literal embodiment of the extraction of resources often built on the back of enslaved peoples. So we can look at them and with the proper understanding of context and history, we can have more nuanced understandings of the world. Looking at colonial architecture in particular, we can say beautiful things can sometimes come about as a product of awful behaviour. Now, that's not to say that legitimises either of those things, more to say that we need to look beyond the mask of beauty and things being aesthetically pleasing and understanding does this hide something awful or malign. And I think understanding that context, that can be useful. For me, going to Chernobyl, I thought I found, I find Chernobyl a fascinating place because it covers so many things that I'm interested in. It was, it was imperialism. You know, I think we often forget that Russia as a country today and historically was and still is an empire. It had occupied this region and it had treated the people there awfully. It had allowed this accident to happen and didn't really take responsibility for it. The Soviet Union did go in and clean it up. But understanding what that meant for how Ukrainians feel about the Soviet Union and therefore Russia, I think was quite an indicative thing. Uh, So if you view it in that context, I think that can be interesting. Um, I mean, Chernobyl, that area is fascinating that it shows what can happen when humans leave an area. As a product of the Chernobyl disaster, humans have not been really able to denature, farm or do anything to that region. We've seen how well wildlife has actually been able to return to that area. There's lots of wolves, uh, uh, lots of other species you don't find in other parts of Europe. That can be an interesting insight. What about the relatively recent notion of the midlife gap year, Ash? Have you got any tips for middle-aged people and um, I'm going on a taking a flyer here and guessing that quite a few of our listeners might be around that period of their lives is there a starter trip that you could do that's a relatively safe one relatively uncomplicated but has enough adventure in it to say when you get back you can bore your friends at the book club um uh, yeah absolutely I mean I I, I, as, a, as a single country to travel to, I think New Zealand is one of the most wonderful places to travel, particularly scrape beneath the surface and start to get an insight into that, um, the Maori culture. There's some amazing things you can do that can gain you access to it. If you get off the beaten track and don't just go to Queenstown and do bungee jumps, you can actually have a really fascinating time there. Australia's doing a very good job as well of uh, raising the prominence of um, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in their country, First Nation tourism. Uh, despite what I was saying earlier on about some of the um, risks, I, I wouldn't even call them risks when we were talking about the idea of travelling on your own and so on. I think India is an incredibly rewarding place to travel. I think it is a place where you, there's very few places in the world where you can go to and immediately, despite the development, despite the urbanisation and westernisation in many ways of the place, you can still get in touch with something very different, like the 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 the, the, uh, the sense of a world and a culture that doesn't only uh, value materialism and, and capital gain. There's definitely that aspect in India, and and that contrast uh, is also very interesting. Nepal is a wonderful place to travel. Uh, again, through the work of people like uh, Nims Perja, raising the prominence of Nepalese mountaineers. 
uh, you can travel there and do some amazing things with Nepalese guides who can uh, bring you into their culture and show you the depth of Nepal. My favourite country to travel to in the last 10 years is Ukraine. Not an easy place to travel to, not an advisable place to travel to at the moment. But that is also a place that I think shows what happens when people are given their freedom as they threw off the legacy of Sovietism and then after 2014 throwing off uh, Russian interference. It's a country that really discovered itself and it's an amazingly rich place for diversity of landscape, safe travel uh, when there's not a war on and incredible variety of culture across the nation. Can we end with a quick fire round where you can only say, uh, you can only give one word answers to these. Would that be all right for you, Ash? Let's do it. Here we go. Uh, place that you couldn't wait to leave. Oh, gosh. Can we come back to that one so I can think about yes, it? Yes, wanna... we certainly can. Yeah. Place you really wanted to stay forever? New Zealand. Best ever view. Can I ask if you travel with Imodium? I don't travel with Imodium. Oh, no, I do. I do. I, I always carry a first aid pack. And I within that, there are aerolites and there's Imodium in there always. Uh, Favourite view. Um, I'm going to have to return to New Zealand again. There's a place called Lookout Point that looks out over the Southern Alps in the Matakitaki River. And you can see Mount Aspiring. It's incredible. Place that changed you. India. It was the first place I travelled on my own. It was a place where I started to get an understanding of my heritage. And it's a place where I really saw how different lives could be. And are you any good on a holiday, a family holiday? Not travelling, not adventure, just a holiday. (laughs) Do you know I had... I had my first holiday that I paid for that wasn't either an adventure filming or a press trip uh, just over the summer. The first holiday I've had in years. And my wife and I went on a baby moon, awful term, before our baby Lyra was born. And we went to Greece. Um, We had the most wonderful time. We went over to Naxos and it was absolutely gorgeous. Okay, and could you just, you know, enjoy it? Could you just, can you lie on a sun lounger, just soak it all up, read a nice airport novel, have a drink maybe at 11.30, you know, just (laughs) crack on with it all? See, I did all of those things and I absolutely loved it. There was a part of me that kept saying, should we go and have a look at Mount Olympus? And Dre said, I'm six months pregnant, we're not walking up Mount Olympus. (laughs) Okay, let's go sit on the sun lounger. That was travel writer and filmmaker and podcaster Ash Bardwaj and he'll be talking at Destinations this coming weekend. Yes, and you can pop down if you're in the Kensington Olympia area. Um, I seem to remember that Kensington Olympia was where... Don't they have they have like a show there all the time, don't they? Yeah, I think it's best known for the beer festival. Actually, there's the beer it? festival and then there's the... There's one, there's a kind of adult entertainment festival. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I only went past on the number nine bus. I don't know anything about it. There's always something going on. But there's going to be a big, shiny new development down there. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's a massive kind of entertainment thing that's going to open up at Kensington Olympia at some point in the next decade. Thrilling to those of us who live <laughs> in the West London area. Not a 
blinding bit of news to anybody in the rest of the world. Uh, anyway, I thought he was very interesting. I really admire him for going on a baby moon, um, which I think, are they becoming increasingly common, the idea that before the reality of parenthood hits you, you can just chill out as you'll never be able to chill out again. Well, it's, it seems to be a sensible thing to do. Probably is, it probably yeah. is a really good idea. We went yeah. to Marrakesh uh, when I was pregnant with my first... Marrakesh, yeah. Uh, and it was... it was Actually, we'd booked it before I was pregnant. It, Marrakesh is a wonderful place, evocative of many things, incredibly busy... You know, at, at turns uh, alarming and yes. enjoyable. Uh, yes. A dreadful, dreadful place to go if you're pregnant. I was going to say, possibly not <laughs> ideal. I have been, though I wasn't pregnant. and All of um, the, smells the smells just made me feel incredibly unwell all yeah. the time. And, and, you know, I was feeling unwell all the time anyway, so that didn't help. Uh, at one stage we went to a special evening out uh, in this, I mean, really beautiful, absolutely beautiful restaurant, but the only thing that they served was pigeon. <laughs> Just pigeon six ways, <laughs> yeah, it was, and just the busyness of all of the souks. It was just terrible, actually. It wasn't a baby moon at all. No. So I would, ju- I've just popped that in um, as a little bit of advice. I think uh, Ash was right to just go. Maybe he went to Greece. Quieter. He went to Greece, which yeah. I thought was a good idea. Southport is also a great location for a baby moon. Um, right, yeah, or maybe maybe don't go anywhere, or maybe just stay at home. <laughs> And uh, just read and listen to classical music. <laughs> just, I've never been able to look at a pigeon in the same way again. Uh, but I couldn't eat the pigeon, can I just say. What was the kids' cartoon when, certainly when I was growing up, Catch the Pigeon? Catch the Pigeon? Oh, no, I don't remember that. OK, right. Well, it was very good. I think it was Wacky Races. <laughs> anyway, I have eaten pigeon and there's not a lot on the bird. There's not a lot to get to. It's a lot of effort, a lot of bones for very little meat. Yes. Uh, just before we leave uh, the, all of the things that Ash was talking about, would you go on a tour of somewhere like Chernobyl? Gosh, that's... Uh, I was thinking about this. Does it differ from visiting something like the 9-11 memorial? Well, I have visited it, the 9-11 okay. memorial. I haven't, so I don't... What's that like? Uh, it's incredibly... It's It's extraordinary because... You know, Manhattan is a very compact place, actually. Mm. And I think, um, you know, 9-11 was such a a massive event with so much loss of life. You expect the memorial to be bigger, actually. I'm not the only person to say that. And it's not that it's not bigger, but I think you're just expecting uh, something different. And also, you are bound to be visiting the site at the same time as people who were affected by it. Yes. So yeah. I I felt it was important to go there because I was in Manhattan for quite a while. Uh, and I really... Did I feel... I mean, I'm glad I went because it... Ash is right. It, it gives a different perspective to your understanding of something. And it does connect you to it if you weren't connected to it before, which is a good thing. Mm. But I felt embarrassed to be there because I know that I was standing next to people who'd lost their loved ones and they were there for a, a completely different, far, far deeper reason. But I wonder, it reminds me a bit, not a direct comparison, I went on, I'm sure I've mentioned it before, I know I have, on one of those uh, charity red nose trips to Ghana and I was staying in a really nice hotel. I was only there for two nights, maybe three nights, I think it was, and and then we went to the slums during the day. Mm. And, um, and I did some interviews and, I, and the whole thing was deeply peculiar it isn't a direct comparison but i do 
and you, you know, Ash mentions when he was in Honduras, I think he said Honduras, and the, the woman came out and warned them to go back and steer. I mean, will that woman in Honduras ever do ever any of her own travelling to anywhere? She, I mean, logically speaking, she won't, will she? So we're, we privileged folk are visiting the rest of the world... And we know they can't come to visit us. It's not true of New York, of course. No. But I don't know, the whole business of travel, I think it's fascinating. I'm not expressing it very well, but I think there is a, there's a politics about travel, isn't there? Definitely. Very much so, yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not something everyone can do. No, but I, I like what Ash said about going to travel because I was a bit cynical about it, actually. I thought, well, I'm not sure about so what, that. So you can just wander around? So you can. You're given a Geiger counter in the same way that if you went to the, uh, you know, the, the Natural History Museum, you can rent out an audio guide and your Geiger counter will tell you. Ping, oh. Yeah, which, uh, you know, is, is really... I would find that incredibly strange, and I'd just leave. Um, but but I but I appreciated what he said actually about just seeing something that happened that lives almost in our imagination. Mm. I think as much as in our reality now, you know, because it was such a long time ago. But to see it and, and realise what men and women have done to the planet yeah. and what can then happen afterwards is probably a good thing. Yes, we can talk forever about who travels where, how they get there, whether or not they should go. And what they come back with. And what they come back with, yes, because it's no good if we are changed by visiting India, but we're changed in some ways. I haven't been to India, but I imagine you'd be changed in some ways by seeing glimpses of absolute abject poverty and those people yes, use, is... use them in a way to... to is India new... changed by you well, visiting it? Of course it, it bloody well, well isn't. Well, it was very much changed by too many British people oh, yes, visiting well, it not... in the first place. So there's that That's too. what I mean about the politics and the economics of travel. There are some very difficult questions to answer. Yep. Well, none of which we should be even asking as we're promoting a travel show at Kensington Olympia. No, but people people travel for good reasons. Yes, some of them do. Yeah. Right. Uh, shall God we do some emails? How much of this you'll be able to use. <laughs> Let's do some emails. Uh, dear Fee and Jane, I live and work in Madrid and most of my friends live elsewhere so I love that your podcast keeps me company four times a week. I usually listen to it once I get home from work and start to prepare dinner or the next day's packed lunch alone in the kitchen for my two grumpy teenagers. I remember the theme tune received some critique in the beginning. And you're absolutely right, Paulina. Uh, I also found it extremely annoying after listening to your previous podcast with no such upbeat tunes. But then I decided to dance to it and release my tensions from being slouched over my computer all day at the office. I tried to move every bit of my rigid Scandinavian body, especially my arms and hips. The little few-second dance before you start and at the end of your programme puts me in a good mood and I think my hips have even begun to move a tiny bit too. Sometimes if I listen to your podcast on my commute, I sashay down the street for a few beats, but I don't think anybody notices by my wildly swaying hips amongst the elegant madrilinas. Uh, I posted tonight's kitchen dance on Twitter as a dance challenge to your listeners. And have you seen that, Jane? I have seen it. And Paulina has nothing to... She's a good dancer. It is fantastic. She's a fantastic mover. And um, I was incredibly jealous of your ability. So pat yourself right on the back, because you're so sinewy. I imagine you're easily able to do that. It'd be something I'd struggle with. But also, I rather like the fact it seems to sum up the kind of loose-limbed, not entirely prepared nature of the podcast. I think it speaks to, to use a terrible 
terrible term that everyone uses too much at the moment. The essence of what this is all about. Uh, so you can find it if you go on to Twitter. This is at P Stalberg, S-T-A-H-L-B-E-R-G. Uh, or you could find it if you just search Jane Garvey One or Fifi Glover. And if you too would like to do a dance to the theme tune, uh, we'd absolutely love to see it. I think our theme tune has grown on... It's certainly grown on me, and I think it's grown on a few people listening because uh, there is a different mood here. Um, we are we are a little bit jauntier, aren't we? We're allowed to be. I think we're fast-paced. Well, I, no. Well, I, I think that's... No, you've gone... Now you've gone way too far. I'd almost rather listen to me talking about the... <laughs> politics of travel than have you claim that we're fast-paced. I wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, touche. Touche? Get me. Uh, Josie is in New Zealand. It's sultry and 27 degrees in Auckland. Oh, lucky you. Uh, She's making, how do I pronounce this? Caviche. Caviche? For dinner? Caviche. What is it? Ceviche. Then she says it's too hot to cook anything. Well, what is it? It's when you marinate fish or another raw meat just Ooh. in lemon juice, isn't it? Could you could you marinate a pigeon? Oh, don't go back to the pigeon. Anyway, um, Josie has enjoyed the interview with Sarah Polly, who's the director of Women Talking. Um, she said it was a good interview, and actually, we we do recommend that film, Women Talking. It's not the. It's one of those films that uh, I'm not sure it's on terribly wide release. I, I've I've noticed that. It's available, certainly in London, but not at terrifically useful times and not in that many venues. Um, so uh, do seek it out, though, because it's well, well worth a watch. Um, talking of women and what we have to put up with, until I switched from journalism to law, I didn't realise just how toxic toxic it was for many women in law companies especially. And Josie wants to draw our attention to a, a truly magnificent woman actually called Anne Oliverius. Uh, she speaks truth to power, great talent. I think she'd be good on your show. She does have a small social media present, presence which I always leap on when she posts. So there's a name that you might well want to seek out if you're interested in uh, law and women and women's employment rights in particular. And thank you very much to Anna, who has sent a very thoughtful email about pet food mm. and because I've upset Anna because I mentioned the other day that Barbara's gone a bit gourmet. Uh, Barbara is a kitten. <laughs> and she, I have been feeding her uh, the tiny tins of gourmet food that cost twice as much. And Anna's not thrilled at this because she doesn't think that they contain the right mix of well, ingredients. Uh, to be perfect, I, I read the email with interest. I have, I've, if I'm honest, I've never looked at what's in cat food. Should I've, I have done? I've always assumed very much the same things are in cat food, just in different kind of, uh, uh, what's the right word? Quantities. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, darling. Um, uh, and and I, I get that the more expensive ones should have a better provenance about them. Well, you would imagine so, but um, you know, it's a little bit like you know when you buy a ready meal, um, at, or indeed a moisturizer. I'm convinced they're all just made in the same great big tub somewhere in an industrial estate somewhere, possibly in the Midlands. I'm going to say, uh, and they oh they st- and they've got one tub that's full of moisturiser and one tub that's full of um, beef stew. I love the Midlands. By yeah. <laughs> so no, I listen. I I owe so much to the Midlands, not least my honorary doctorate from the University of Birmingham. Um, <laughs> and indeed, oh, never mind. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, so I'm not entirely sure about what 
might be in pet food. What I did, uh, what I could certainly bring to this particular conversational party, is that my Dora uh, did start her digestive journey off on very sensitive cat kibble. Uh, but she's lately begun to explore a whole new world. And the other day, my youngest daughter, who is a bit of a Herbert, she's a student, she'd popped upstairs having uh, decided to make a tuna sandwich for lunch and uh, left a load of mashed-up tuna in a small bowl on the side in the kitchen. And when she came downstairs, guess whose <coughs> big tabby Sorry. head was wedged in the, in the bowl of tuna, which yeah. uh, I just told her, just get Dora's head out of the bowl, dust it down, and it'll be absolutely fine in your body. Really? And did she do that? Of course no. I didn't say that, because I'm an incredibly <laughs> caring parent. I'm a little like our guest, Ash Bawaj. I care about my daughter, and of course I didn't let her eat that okay. tuna. Well, Anna, I, I take your point, and I'm going to investigate all of this a little bit further. I mean, I have to also admit that Nancy, the enormous greyhound, mm. absolute love of my life... Does she eat cat food? No, she gets a ridiculously special dog food. Because she's quite a sensitive poppet too. Oh, is she? Oh, I know. We live in a world of sensitive pets. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you what, with greyhounds, you don't you don't want to abuse their intestines too much because their wind is tragic. So if she's not on quite an expensive dog food, I mean, honestly, there are some days you can't really get into the house. The smell is so bad. <laughs> Has she ever tried tripe? Well, that was the problem. I was feeding her a dog food that had tripe in it, right. and it was just dreadful. Oh, that was the issue. Because I yeah. remember back, we had a, I bought a collie when I was growing up, Jenny, and um, uh, when my mum, my mum used to love tripe, and nobody else in the family liked it. So every now and again, she would cook tripe just for her and the dog. And <laughs> just I can remember the smell. I mean, I mean tripe is a vile product. It's challenging. But, but my mum grew up in Liverpool in, you know, during the war and tripe was something that people did eat um, and liked, apparently. And mum, I think she still does like tripe. Um, but the dog used to absolutely love it. Yeah, well, I think Nancy loved, loved it, but right. the, but, but it the didn't. Smell, no, it no, didn't love her on no, really entrails. Yes, uh, and her digestive system didn't get on with it. Okay, well, hopefully this has put everybody on the rocky road to um, booking a holiday. In a- <laughs> Which I think was our original intention, although I'm not absolutely certain anymore what our intention was. I think we've managed to be offensive. Probably meandering. Um, yep, a little bit xenophobic, mm-hmm. and definitely just rather me, rather unpleasant towards the end. So I apologise for all of that, and it'll be much much better next week. Jane and Fee at Times Radio. You can be a part of this. I mean, whether you'd want to be or not is the really big question. You have been listening to Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you liked what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this but live, uh, then you can Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 on Times Radio. Yeah. Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com